This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, of the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today, it is episode 3249 of the Survival Podcast. We're going to talk about urban and small space homesteading with Elise Pickett. And she is uh, the founder of a website called TheUrbanHarvest.com. Really active, really doing things, helping people get gardens off the ground in urban and suburban environments. This was a fantastic discussion. We'll drop into it in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. You guys know I'm big on Bitcoin, but I'm still big on stacking not just sats. I'm also big on stacking silver. I think silver and gold are great forms of alternative investment as a wealth assurance plan. They've been money for about as long as humans have used money. They've never been worth zero. And the only real important question I have is where are you going to get your silver and gold from? And I'll tell you why you should use JM Bullion. One, you're going to get better pricing for the same silver. It's kind of the whole whole point of silver, gold, etc. It's all the same. And you have a one-ounce silver eagle. That's what you have. So why pay more for it, too? You're going to get all your shipping for free. Why would you pay for shipping if you don't have to? And three... If you're a member of the Member Support Brigade, you're going to get a discount on monthly silver or gold purchases from JM Bullion. I don't know anybody else that has discounts on silver and gold. It's such a razor-thin margin market as it is. So check them out today, JM Bullion. Uh, Now, you, you probably don't carry silver and gold around in your wallet, but you probably carry a wallet. And that's why I recommend you check out RidgeWallet.com. I've been carrying one since they became a sponsor about five years ago now. And I love it. And I'm still carrying the same one that they sent me back when, when we agreed to their sponsorship. It's held up just perfectly. It makes all of my stuff protected from identity theft because it's encased in titanium. I don't know if you know this, but there are little products you can buy for 18 20 bucks on eBay. You can make scanners, and you can walk around and pick up the information on people's RFID cards that they're carrying around in their wallets and their purses. Not if it's protected. Uh, by Ridge Wallet and other things. Ridge Wallet just has a, it's not just Ridge Wallet anymore. You think of it as Ridge. Uh, they're a full EDC company now. They have some amazing projects, products available at Ridge.com and they too give you 10% off all products all the time if you're an MSB member. Check them out today at Ridge.com. All right, with that, let's go ahead and drop into our live feed with our special guest. And we are live. Welcome to today's episode of the Survival Podcast. Today I have Elise Pickett, and we are going to be talking about small-scale and urban gardening and permaculture. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this one. It, it fits well with what I talked about yesterday. I kind of talked about homesteading on kind of a larger properties yesterday, but not really big ones, just kind of a different niche than this. But I think what's really interesting about looking at these small spaces, and I always advise people that with this, if you have a small space, use it. If you have a big space, develop the small space first anyway, because that's where some of the most productive and highest ROI things are, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, the people go, go with the misconception that, like, you know, you need a ton of space to get much done. But, you know, 80, 90 percent of what you are growing 
is going to be intensively cultivated anyhow. Like, sure, you need room for the fruit trees or the whatever, but, you know, um, urban uh, urban gardening is two times as productive as commercial farms. Like, you can squeeze a lot in a small space, and that's that's where you're getting most of your harvests anyhow. <laughs> and so why do you, you know, you kind of advise people to do this stuff right in the city, right in the suburbs or the urban environments. Uh, what are the advantages to, to that over, let's say, just going out and getting some land somewhere kind of outside of things? Well, I think there's a huge advantage just because a lot of times when we're we're not quite ready to shift out there, right? Like maybe the job doesn't go with you or maybe uh, you don't have enough saved up to purchase that large piece of land or whatever. So when you work with what you've got, you start somewhere, you start the learning process, you can meet a lot of your needs, even in the urban environment, and it gets you started, right? So it gives you that that point to grow from. And if down the road you you find some more land, you can expand then. But um, I think everybody looks for like that ideal scenario, and then they never start because they're always waiting until that right opportunity to leave the city or that right opportunity to go elsewhere. And that doesn't get you very far. <laughs> yeah, waiting is generally a bad option uh, in most, not all things, but in many things. Can you tell us, how did you get involved with doing all this stuff and a little bit about your your organization? Uh, yeah, so um, I, uh, I run Urban Harvest, and I've been doing it now for about 10 years, and it's basically just teaching people the basics of vegetable gardening, urban homesteading, and just growing food growing your own food in some form or fashion. Um, so I do everything organically. Um, I took my PDC, did all that good stuff. Um, and I certainly aim for people to take that approach to gardening. But as long as people are growing something, that's that's my goal, getting fresh food on the table for people. Awesome. And to you, what makes something an urban homestead? That's a term that gets thrown around quite a bit. It is. Modern homesteading urban homesteading, they're like almost kind of like, I don't know, like fad terms or something like that. But yeah, I think in my opinion, growing food to meet some or all of your needs is what urban homesteading is all about. It's, it's doing more than having the single tomato plant or that, you know, the little um, container patio garden. It's, it's trying to meet some or most of your needs and whether that be 20% if you're working super small scale or 60% or more, even in a, you know, an urban environment, you can meet a lot more of your needs than you, you would ever expect. You know, and I think there's a lot of folks in our country, we're a little bit spoiled on what it is to have land. If you look at, let's say uh, the United Kingdom, a lot of lots here that we say are really small lots, someone over there that wanted to garden would be in love with the idea of having the average typical suburban lot in the United mm-hmm. States. Absolutely. I mean, I'm so this my my homestead that I'm I'm at now, it's a 5600 square foot lot in the middle of a city. We are we are I'm in Tampa Bay, so we're literally wall to wall surrounded by water and um there's a house in every square inch of it and I'm still able to meet a significant amount of our needs, um, even in an urban setting. Uh, and I've only developed this three years ago. We're at like three and a half years on the property. Haven't bought any sort of leafy greens since we moved in um, three years ago. Um, we get all, you know, we hit certain targets. We don't get it all, but the system's developing by the by the day, by the by the month, by the year, and even in a short time frame, small space, 
Um, and, and, you know, like even the container gardens, you were talking about people in the United Kingdom or whatever, even let's take Chicago or Philadelphia or like some of our major cities here in the U.S., they don't have backyards, but um, even in most of us have access to more than we think. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think one of the real advantages, too, with these small spaces is if you're starting out with soil that needs improvement, you can move really fast. Because when you're trying to improve, let's say, a one acre market garden, that's a lot of input, a lot of input. But when you're trying to get a couple four by four uh, containers or in-ground beds off the ground, you can get that soil into really good shape really, really quickly. You mentioned you, you've been uh, doing what you're doing at your place now for, I think you just said, three years. And you can go really far in three years when you're managing small spaces. And it's amazing. So, like, when we first moved in, you know, I, I've done this for, well, I've gardened my whole life, but I've been doing this now for 10 years. When we moved in this space, it was a full rehab. And so, obviously, a new gardening's key for us, right? And so, I started a compost pile. I started a nine-yard car- compost pile in our backyard, turned it by hand every two weeks. We move in two or three months later, I have three yards of finished compost to fill my raised beds. This is, a, you know... It, you can get things going really quickly in a short time frame. And like you said, soil health, I, I preach that all the time. Number one, the biggest thing you should be focusing on is soil health. I live in Florida. Like if, if you ventured here, we got sand, sand, <laughs> yeah. sand, yeah. that's about, that's about all we got. Right. But, um, you know, you can do your compost piles and especially in urban settings, it is so much easier to source nitrogen and inputs for compost piles, when you're in a city, like you don't have to go find the horse stable. We have restaurants and breweries and coffee shops and all that, just throwing it in the dumpster. There's no shortage of nitrogen when you're in the city. Um, but yeah, soil health is huge. And I, I've done, you know, the sheet mulching and everything. I have people come tour my property and it just looks like a bunch of mulch on the ground. And I show them, you know, I dig down and like two inches down, it is black. In three less than three years time, it didn't even take that long, but it's black soil that looks just like the nicest soil that you can find in, you know, like the valleys and everything like that. It's you can build soil. Yeah, the sure. nitrogen's there, but the carbon is too. Well, one thing I miss about when I lived in my suburban home in Arlington was that all my neighbors hated leaves. And a bunch of them had the real expensive leaf vacuum thing so that they would make these giant bags of shredded compressed carbon for free and you could just walk or I could walk around the block in the springtime whenever like after the winter here is when everybody does their leaves. They don't do it in the fall for some reason. It's right before the grass all starts to turn green and I could just get bales literal bales because it's compressed into these bags Mm -hmm. of of oak leaves and maple leaves and stuff like that for free. And they Mm -hmm. all thought I was Looney Tunes (laughs) because I'm, I'm running around stealing their garbage. Right. Um, and I'd always ask because I'd want to know, like, is this just leaves or is there a bunch of crap in here, too, that I don't want? And yeah. they're always like, yeah, you can have it. Then they'd all ask us why our garden looked like it did and our yard looked like it did. I don't know. We're lucky, I guess, you know. <laughs> yeah, you so, got it coming from um, both sides for sure. So um, how much space do you think someone really needs? You mentioned 5,600 square feet. That's right at just a little over a tenth of an acre. And plus you have the house yep. footprint fitting in it, right? So that's, you know, you're, you're somewhere in the neighborhood of a 20th of an acre, 25th of an acre of usable space then maybe. Um, and, and I know you do quite a bit. How much space does somebody need to make a, a, a dent? I mean, I say it all the time. You can grow some herbs 
and leafy greens on a patio in a small footprint. But to really start to make a difference, how much square foot do you think a person really needs? It's going to depend on like, you know, your eating habits and everything like that. And your like, um, what you're, I always tell people, like, they ask me, like, what to, what should I grow? What do you eat? You know, like, so that's going to look a little different for everybody. But I mean, really and truly with it, something between like 250, 500 square feet of growing space, which doesn't sound like a lot. If it's intensively cultivated and you're focusing on, you know, maximizing your space and doing some vertical gardening and um, picking certain varieties that really are well adapted and productive over a longer season, you can, you can not meet everything by any stretch of the imagination, sure. but you can do a lot. You can make a dent with just 500 square feet of growing space. And when you get the raised beds and everything like that, that might be, you know, maybe a quarter of the yard at best. And, and you're making a, a huge dent. What are your thoughts on tech like hydro and aquaponics? A lot of people use those in urban settings and um, it's cool. You can grow indoors. You can maximize space. You get the upward vertical growth. You can do all that. I personally am a huge believer in soil and um, closed loop systems. So I'm not personally a huge fan of them. They grow food, um, a lot of food in a small space. But for me, soil based gardening is really important because I just don't what, you know, the what ifs. Like, what mm-hmm. if that fertilizer goes up in price? What if they go out of business? What if, what if? There's ways you can manufacture your own. You can do aquaponics. You can use some fertility on site, but it's a lot harder to manage. When you have soil-based systems, that's something that's always in-house, right? Like, you can always pretty much make soil. Um, so I definitely do a lot of vertical gardening and container gardening. Um, you know, at maximizing space. We were just talking about that. I, I use like green stocks, right? It's a soil-based vertical system. You have three square feet. You fit 70 plants, you know? So um, I, I'm not a personal huge fan of the aquaponics, although I've learned a lot about it mm-hmm. um, and mentored under some folks that do that. But um, to me, it's all about the soil. Yeah, I think there's that's a specialized thing and it has to mm-hmm. fit the total design. Uh, but what I've noticed is my best results that involve my aquatic systems are actually soil based aquatic systems. So what we're doing is running wicking beds where we'll have maybe a foot of soil and eight inches of gravel underlayment with a weed blocker in between like a typical wicking bed. Uh, but we're running water out of ponds through the bottom of that and we'll run that on a timer 15 minutes twice a day. So that level in that wicking bed never goes below the, where it's it's what, keeping the soil moist and you're getting yeah. all that nutrient exchange, but you're not washing through. And then you're still in a soil system. Like you said, there's a lot of things that are easier. Like I have some ebb and flow beds because they're just good for the health of the ponds. But you can mess that up real easy. You got to pay attention to what you, there's you know, nutrient deficiency. So the soil is a buffer. It's a pH buffer. It's a nutrient buffer. And you can just add organic fertility to your wicking bed anytime you want on that soil layer where you you can get away with it with an m flow bed you can throw some blood meal on top of it or whatever but it's, it, it is it is more finicky where those mm-hmm. flow through beds are it's basically just a wicking bed and you're using the aquatics to save labor. you're automating the irrigation you know yep i i agree i i, I like the wicking beds a lot i i, I always um tell folks i'm like you know we can especially beginner gardeners, if you're just starting out or if you're just starting to homestead, like stop. If, when we're managing, there's more spots for us to screw up, right? Like if we're working in the wicking bed or if we're working in a soil-based system, 
the plants can kind of pull what they need as they need it, right? Sure. If we're trying to like play that guessing game of, oh, it's in flowering stage. Oh, it's in this stage. I need to add this type of nutrient, that type of nutrient. You can do it, but there's a heck of a lot more ways <laughs> to trip up. And so if we can just let the plants kind of do what they do best and know what they need and do it as they need it, I, I feel like there's, there's um, like you said, there's a lot more room for, or less room for air. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, how sustainable, or you use the word closed loop, which I find interesting because aquaponics is a very closed loop system. Um, how closed loop can you make a system like you're talking about backyard gardens and things like that? Um, I think that especially in an urban setting, we're kind of, we, there's always like, depending on, on your approach or your thoughts and everything like that as to why you're choosing to homestead, there's different factors that go into it. But if we're looking strictly from a, I can grow my food standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. I think that a closed loop system is super achievable in the city. Um, even without livestock or even without these other things that we always hear about for homesteading and everything like that. Um, because we have so many resources in our immediate vicinity. We're not having to drive to go collect things. We're not having to source things that we don't really have on site. And so, you know, I, on my 5,600 square foot lot, I don't buy fertilizer. You know, I have chickens. I do composting. I do vermicomposting. That's my fertility. I don't have to bring anything on site for that. We have a well, you know, that that's our irrigation. That's what we use for water. I don't have to rely on the city if I don't want to, although I, I need the, the power, but you know, so we can create a lot of um, circles within our, our space or our ecosystem without having to branch out quite so far. Um, and it takes time to develop, but within a couple of years, it's very achievable. Yeah, one great thing about your your uh, state, too, if you want to put a well in, Florida's a place to live. It's not hard. I remember when I was a kid, my grandfather had an irrigation well put in for his lawn. He kept his lawn like a golf course. And the dude literally dug the well with a garden hose and a pipe. Like he was just like work the pipe in the ground with the water pressure in it. And he was, he went down eight foot and he had two foot of water. He said, I'm going to go down to 12 foot and you'll never not have water. And mm -hmm. so he put a 12 foot well and my well's 180 foot and it's all rock. I, I'm glad I didn't pay to have it drilled back in the seventies when it was put in because today it'll take you eight months to get it done for somebody to show up. And it costs you about $40,000 to put a well in around here. The wells are insane and we have um, property elsewhere and to get a well dug there, it, it's, it's not an option. Not an option. <laughs> yeah. prohibitive, let's Once just say that. Once you get in the limestone or granite, everything changes with the cost of making a hole. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely the case. I do think it's interesting the amount of waste stream that's available in the city and other resources in the city. And that kind of hits on that permaculture principle from David Holgram of the problem is a solution. There's no doubt that we have too much waste without proper disposal mechanisms for it in these urban environments. That's why everybody's garbage goes to a landfill uh, 50 miles away and it's out of sight, out of mind. It's pretty awful looking. And so much of that material is usable for fertility or to feed the chickens or to feed the worms. And so, you know, you're, you're in walking distance from that supply stream or a bike ride or even a short car ride. Whereas when we're out in the country like I am, it's a little bit more difficult to acquire that material. Yeah, you got your chop and drop and stuff like that. You can build it into your system, but it's not just like this constant stream like we have here. We have um, 
a blue bucket compost, like picking up compost. We're doing, we're doing things that we have a, a dropout back, like community based. Right. So yeah. I have out at the back of my property, I have a little sign saying, put your compost in here. And I've got neighbors that, that are semi open to it or whatever. And they come yeah. and they put their bags of compost in there. I don't even have to leave, leave my space. Um, I, I do um, YouTube videos and tutorials and stuff. And I have an entire one. I'm like, don't throw your scraps in the compost pile. There's about 10 other things you could probably do with them before they ever hit that. Right. Like yeah. you can feed it to the chickens. You can feed it to the worms. You can make, you know, stock out of it with your, your chicken bones. You can do all these other things before it ever even really needs to hit the compost pile. So I've been kind of preaching this stuff for almost 15 years now. It's kind of scary to think about it that way. But uh, I've always said that if you want to restore broad scale ecosystems using regenerative ag techniques, you need animals in the system. We're not going to restore a 40,000 acre inert lying dead plot of soil with a, 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 a vegan like approach. And I'm sorry to people that that upsets. It's just true. I don't think we have to do it in urban environments, though, because we can so intensively manage these small. This is not broad acre. This is sub acre stuff. But I still think that animals in the system, and you've mentioned chickens several times, accelerate everything. And they also help us deal with things like you said, waste streams. Like I don't have garbage. I have chicken food. Right. So mm-hmm. what kind of animal resources can we use in these urban environments to 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 increase fertility? or to help provide feed for family. Yeah. So we always think like, okay, so regenerative ag, you read your books and you're like, I need cows. Mm-hmm. Probably not going to be fitting a cow in your, no. your urban lot. That's not really uh, feasible, but there are more livestock than mo- most people think. Chickens are like the obvious one that everybody starts with. And, you know, they're great for turning your compost piles and giving you awesome poop out the other end to put into those compost piles and, pest management in the sheet mulch and all that stuff, food for you, uh, whether it be eggs or meat. Um, but, you know, often overlooked, if you're not able to do chickens or you need something smaller scale, what about, you know, quail or rabbits? We're talking about super tiny little hutches, giving them ample space um, for them to live their healthy lives and, and produce well. Um, but honestly, my my favorite livestock on our property is my worms. Um, they're not necessarily something that I'm going to be eating unless push came to real shove, but they're an amazing source of fertility and worms take up no space. Nobody's going to hear them or see them or smell them. It is something that literally your like apartment patio can have livestock. Technically worms are livestock. They're farmers just as much as I am. I agree completely. Whenever I do a presentation on small scale livestock, I always include bees and worms as two mm-hmm. forms of livestock that people don't think of. Because like you said, I'm not going to eat my worms. Um, I can I can feed myself with my worms, though, because I take a handful of my worms down to the pond and we catch catfish. With Absolutely. Them, right? So they're good for that. They're, they can be a source of revenue, et cetera. Um, one problem I actually have is I've never been able to keep worms here long term. Because we have so many fire ants, they seek out warm, moist, loose soil, and they look for food. And worms are all of those things to an ant. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying right now to devise a fire ant-proof worm farm. And I'm thinking if I can get the seal on the lid right and then just cover all of the conventional holes with really fine mesh, maybe that'll keep the dadgum things out. But Every worm bin, I've always tried to do them outside so I can 
stack systems together, like let droppings from quail fall right in or whatever, invaded. I mean, absolutely invaded by uh, fire ants. And they, they just murder them. They, they, they just kill them all and take yeah. over and then live there, you know. I wonder, I do like a super um, weird uh, way to do worms. I have mine in a bathtub. It's like perfect okay. for catching lechate. It keep, gives them enough space to get away from the heat. I know you're in Texas and you deal with like intense heat, right? Like I do. Um, they don't you, die. I yeah. keep mine outside year round and they um, don't die. using that and they don't die. They'll slow down on their eating and their castings in the summer, but they live yeah. through it. And I'm wondering if what about like, I don't know, some sort of like tray water underneath, right? That's what I would um, have so that to they do, can't yeah. even access the the yeah. tub or the, the bin that you're creating some sort of like water barrier. Cause they're jerks. I mean, I have tons of wicking beds <laughs> and there's, so there's no ground contact and they go in there too. Cause it's all perfect. Like it's like, Hey, look at this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, um, moving along on, on, on your agenda here. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot that we can do with animal waste streams in the city. Like another animal I think that fits really well in the systems like you have are rabbits. They're quiet. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know that they're there. If they do, as far as I know, they're pets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know several people that keep rabbits that do raise them for meat. But they have said as gardeners, if I didn't use them for meat, I'd still have a couple just for the fertility. Fertility. Part. Absolutely. They're huge. And it's like, so people will come and they'll be like, oh, you know, I live in an HOA. I have like two acres, but I bought in this like subdivision. I'm like, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that people don't actually realize is food. Like nobody's going to call you out for your fruit trees, number one. And, you know, put your garden, your intensively cultivated veggie beds in the back and you can have things like rabbits where they won't know like you would like a chicken or whatever. There's you can. You can really push the limits, I think, with most things um, if you're if you're willing to maybe ask for forgiveness instead of permission. Yeah. And just be creative. I know one dude kind of in that situation doesn't have two. He had 10 acres, but they had an HOA and no poultry. They could have a cow, but no poultry. <laughs> well, it was out the country in Texas. So I just informed him that, hey, you know, there's there's some heirloom variety turkeys that look just like a wild turkey. So he's got a flock of wild turkeys that just happen to live on his property and there's not really anything we can do about it. He doesn't have them in conventional housing or anything. They all roost in trees and yeah. he girdled the trees with some metal so that uh, like predators can't climb up the trees and they just live there and he feeds them. And every once in a while, one disappears, you know, <laughs> it's, there's always a way around when that happens. Been the coyotes. <laughs> design around the restriction, you know, I can't kill them. They're wild and it's out of season. They have to be left alone. I'm protecting them. I'm a wildlife conservationist. So I think there's <laughs> tons of stuff that we can do like that. Um, when you are in these urban environments, one of the things that is nice is you have less choice. So since you have less choice, you have to make a choice and do something when you decide to start. But, you know, with with urban environments come a lot of microclimate shade types and things. So what are some things people should consider when putting in kind of that cornerstone piece or that keystone piece that is their garden on on that site selection choice? Yeah, um, I always I always go with the four S's. So sun, soil, seasons and seed. The first thing, no matter what, when you're looking at garden space, whether it be for your food forest or your veggie beds, it's always sun like, you know, there, we can tweak a lot of things. We can correct a lot of things down the line, but sun is one of those ones that's not easy to fix, um, if able to at all. 
And so I think getting that right, getting that, finding that sunlight, the appropriate sunlight. Um, you know, I live, I live in Florida. We don't need full sun. No. Um, but in, you know, somewhere up north, you're, you're going to need as much sun as you want. So that's where you need to site your beds first and then work with your trees from there. But I'm kind of the reverse. You know, I, I'm looking for four to six hours morning light only. Um, ideally, um, for the veggie beds and then um, going from there. But finding the sun, I think, is one of the most important parts of site selection. Um, and then just like going, expanding from there. I usually place my annual veggie beds first. I know like the trees take up more space and you definitely got to work those into the system. But most people are going to be using your veggie beds for most of your cultivation. And so I think picking that spot first as your step number one and then going from there is is pretty important. But um, after that, it's just like soil, you know, yep. working in that soil, starting to build your soil fertility before as soon as you get your garden beds, even if you're bringing in bulk soil, like start your compost, start bringing in the fertility, start getting some sort of stream situated for you to be able to maintain your beds in the future. Kind of the two biggest mistakes I've seen is, is one was, was just what you said, people in southern climates like ours looking for all day sun. Bad news. And I, I did it when I first moved here. I grew up farming and or gardening and homesteading in Pennsylvania. And so you wanted sun all day. So I found the all day sun. And by June, my plants were like, I hate you and I'm going to die because you did this to me. And it was like, OK, I get it now. I understand. Uh, the other one is kind of the out of sight, out of mind approach where if they do have a larger yard then the garden always ends up lined up with the back fence perfectly in the back corner as far away as possible. So mm -hmm. it's out of, out of the way and you don't have to worry about it being tied. So what happens, it becomes a weed magnet. You're not there enough. You don't see it. You don't notice when something's going wrong. You don't notice when you have a pest uh, infection, a pest infestation or something needs to be addressed. And I think the other thing that happens is you've almost inevitably made sure whatever that solar uh, layout you were looking for. You probably didn't get it. You might have got lucky, but since you were only worried about with look, beds going horizontally against the length of the fence, because we think that way with patterns as humans, you've made a choice that has nothing to do with actually what's best for the garden and best for the gardener either. Yeah, I agree. I, I tell people they should put the beds where they're going to trip over it. it. As long as the sun is appropriate, like put it somewhere you are literally going to trip over that bed. I want it like right next to your garage that you have to walk to every single day to get to your car. Like it should be, and, and, and not, you know, people think like you got to spend a ton of time in the garden or whatever. Spend five minutes a day if that's what you got, but don't yeah. do it once a week. Don't spend your hour in the garden once a week, be out there, have your morning cup of coffee, walk through your garden. Like, just like you said, the pest thing, like if it's in the back 40, and yeah. you're not out there on a regular basis, you're going to have like an apocalypse back there and not know it until it's too late. When you're spending frequent time in the garden, that's when you're going to catch things quickly, remedy it and move on. Um, but the, the um, sunlight as well is just like, that's the key. And I, I, I see a lot of people. So like they'll, they'll like call me in whatever we're setting up the garden. They say like they observed their new place they didn't give it a full year and so like you said they put along the fence and they don't think about the fact that the sun sinks lower in the winter which is our yeah. prime growing season you know thinking about like where is that sun actually coming from it shifts with the seasons we are you in a low spot in the yard like are you going to have water pooling there during your rainy season like 
taking the time, that's like permaculture principle, right? You know, like you got to take time to actually observe your site and figure it out instead of just making our, our human assumptions and orderly business and keeping things neat and clean. Like the observation part will m- make a big difference in the success or failure of the garden. Yeah. Yeah, definitely agreed. What are some ways to maximize production to, you know, try to get as much as you can out of the area that you have? Yeah. Um, because I'm small space and I, I, I have some, I have a, my, my sister and brother-in-law, they're full-time RVers. So they're parking pads in our back spot. So not only am I missing our house space, we got space for them too, but I, I, I literally grow every square inch possible. I grow vertical a lot. So my fences, I have the ugly chain link fence that everybody has um, foregone for plastic, but I grow food up it, right? Uh, we have like a little sidewalk that's on the side of the house to get to the front and the back. I put up cattle panel trellises and I'm growing passion fruit. And then underneath the passion fruit, because it's nice and shady, I have my mushroom logs and my ginger and my turmeric because they can tolerate a little bit more shade. Um, so I use... All of those spaces that otherwise would be overlooked. Um, so growing over the sidewalk, up the fence, up the trees. I have, you know, peppercorn growing up my oak tree. I've got vanilla growing up the other one. When I grow my, you know, my seminal pumpkins each season, I I train them over the fence out into the front yard and up my magnolia tree. Um, they'll, they'll climb all over the place. Um, so um, also thinking about, you know, um, your how how you stack things in. So not, we think about guilds and we think about, you know, layers and stuff when we're looking at a food forest design. So we pick our fruit tree and then we put some understory and then we put some ground cover. Um, and that, that that's good. That needs to happen. But we, we, a lot of times I think people will overlook that same concept as it applies to your raised bed gardens. Right. So like, yeah, if you follow like the general rule of thumb, you got your tomatoes, they need the two and a half square feet of space or whatever, but like they're growing up. So train them up and then put a layer of lower growing stuff next to it, like your basil or your carrots or your whatever, your lettuces in the shade of the tomatoes. And when you do that, then you, you now have two plants growing in the space of one. Um, so I think that really layering things in is important and then going up is another key point and in, in fitting the most you can into a small space. I'd agree with both of those. And I would add like the succession planning too, which is kind of a yeah. byproduct of what you're talking about. When you have a plant that you know is coming to its end of life, prune Having out the underneath, put something that's going to take over underneath it, let it finish and chop and drop it. And then that next plant comes into its own. What do you do uh, as far as irrigation? You mentioned you have a well, but what is your approach to irrigation uh, you are in a climate where it's not as necessary as it is, for instance, here, but it's probably still needed at times. Yeah, it is. We have our dry season and we're actually heading into it over the winter. We, we, we have our dry season, but it's not hot. I mean, I yeah. might water once a week or whatnot, um, but we have like a two to three month, depending on the, the year and the season, where we get into the 80s and 90s, upper 90s, uh, mid 90s and um, no rain in sight for like three months. So we definitely have irrigation timeframes. I think that um, the long and deep watering mm-hmm. is huge. Having adequate soil, like you'll see like those shallow raised beds. And I mean, they can kind of get the job done, but when we have soiled up, the roots are able to extend deeper. Um, so having a nice tall raised bed to allow the plants in the soil that you've built to hold that moisture as long as possible. 
Um, we, like I said, I, we have the well, so we have an irrigation system, um, and we're, we just time it to the season. So, um, you know, half the year we might have it run maybe once a week. So you have like a conventional time. irrigation system, like a lot of people do with, and that's, that's an advantage yep. in suburban properties that you, you know, there's thousands yep. upon thousands of people that water their entire lawn anyway. But that, that's what you're saying is you have a conventional irrigation type system. Then. We do. We have a, a combination. We have some drip and everything like that. Um, but most of it is overhead watering our well. Um, like you said, it puts out so much pressure that we would have we have we have um, we don't have enough ways to dispose of the water as it comes okay. out. So we had to do a um, top irrigation um, okay. just because we needed to be able to put out enough water at once. I've been contemplating getting like a reservoir and kind of doing like the IBC totes filling that with the well, and then I can get a little bit more precise and creative with the way my watering methods. But mm-hmm. um, I guess I'd rather have too much water than not enough. Certainly. Like basically a <laughs> gravity drip. Yeah. You could do that way. Yeah. It, it's, it's great to have a high capacity. Well, though, that that's pretty huge. What do you, what do you do about like pest management? We kind of alluded to that. I mean, I, one of the things with small spaces is you don't have as much, of an issue with dealing with a lot of pests because you can do, you know, mechanical control and things like that. I'm, I'm actually uh, maybe counter um, counter to that. I don't spray. Okay. Um, I will, I will on powdery mildew on occasion. If things get out of hand, I try to pick appropriate varieties that can kind of handle their own. I, I plant in the right seasons and stuff like that. I will occasionally do that. I just, I use milk and water 50, 50, They've done the research. They've shown it's just as effective as most of those like copper sprays and stuff, mm-hmm. but it's a heck of a lot cheaper. So I will on occasion do that, but I, I've really emphasized and taken the time to build up um, permaculture system here. So I've got, you know, parasitic wasps buzzing through the garden, looking for the caterpillars. I've got birds that come through every morning and pick the leaves clean, got lace wings and ladybugs and all that good stuff. I leave I always have flowers, lots and lots of flowers. I used to be like hardcore. Uh, if it's not food, I'm not growing it type of thing because I was limited on space. And I got, I, I understood the principle for like larger spaces, but in the beginning, I just, I completely skipped it. Um, and it was a huge mistake learning curve over the years, but um, you know, allowing them to do that. I don't even really need to mess with it. I just pick appropriate crops. Like when you're growing in a small space, why waste your time? with something that is not super productive and well suited to your space. Like, yeah, you can have the token here or there, the one, one or two things you really, really like, but when you pick plants that are just well adapted, you don't really have to bother with the sprays and everything like that. Um, So I'm, I'm, I'm hands off here in the garden. The only thing I spray is compost tea and I spray that less for pest management and more for the health of the plant, which is good for pest management. About the only insect pest we have that I've been unable to fully beat is the freaking squash vine borers. And they're just Satan's spawn as far as I'm concerned because of, of how they damage the plant. You don't really notice the problem until they, it's like a cancer. They go inside the vine and they start out as a little tiny maggot and they turn into a maggot about as big as the end of your finger and they eat the inside of the vine, and nothing predates on them. Nothing eats them. Nothing kills them. Uh, even if it did, they're pretty well protected because they, they end up inside 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 the vine. But I found like the Trumbachino zucchini. That's what that orange thing is behind me. The yep. the stems on those are so dense that they don't really like it. And even when they do manage to get into the base where it's thicker, they don't kill it. And that's what I've done is adapted the species. 
and I quit trying to grow like uh, yeah, the, the squashes that, that I want to grow, I just stopped growing them because they're too much trouble. It is. I agree fully. I have an entire video on my YouTube channel str- strictly about like squash here yeah. and divine boars and everything like that. And it's like, I, I have the same thing. I grow Tahitian melon and I grow Seminole pumpkin and I grow the Trombacino and I also grow Tatumi. And I got a fourth one that I'm really excited to try. It's called tropical zucchini, which is actually supposed to be more zucchini like. I know. And right. Okay. And it's, it's, um, I can't remember it's, um, genus, but it's, it won't cross pollinate with the other ones. What's this called other than tropical zucchini? It's sickle, um, or I don't even know how to put S I K I L or tropical zucchini. Um, cool. I can get you a few seeds, um, in the mail, but yeah, cool. so it's a, it's a viner, but it stays in that. That's the key with the vining. Let them touch the ground. Cause I've done that before where, mm-hmm. you know, I've gotten squash vine borer, something that messes with it. They'll bury in, but they root along the stem. So I let mine hit the ground as much as possible so that I can lose an entire section of the vine and it's still. If it re-roots, yeah. 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 You bear, I'll bury it when it, when I get an opportunity like that and just make mm-hmm. a little trench, cut off a few leaves because that wound actually encourages rooting and mm-hmm. bury it. I, I have willow everywhere. So I'll grab like a couple handfuls of willow bud and throw it in there with it because that really encourages the rooting um, mm-hmm. and that's about all i can do is grow things that are hard for it to kill and then take strategies instead of trying to like i'm not going to go use a toxin to kill one pest for one crop that i don't really have to have i like mm-hmm. zucchini as much as the next guy but those trombachinos as you know when they're young you, you've got i think they're better now that i discovered them because the whole damn neck there's no seeds Nope. I do the same with loofah. That's another one. So like, I'm all about substitutions. I preach it to the choir. Like, yes, I get it. You like squash, but like, let's consider these other options that don't have all the problems are easier to grow, produce more for you with less effort. Like, you know, there's the leafy greens is another one. Everybody likes like their salads and lettuces, but um, you know, you can't grow it year round, at least not here where I am in, in the heat of Florida, but there's like all these other substitutions. You can grow Egyptian spinach and callaloo and amaranth and, you know, coxcomb. There's like so many different varieties. So if we're willing to think outside the box, we're willing to make some substitutions. You can grow with so much less effort if you're willing to make those small adjustments. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the things we don't think of as food. You mentioned loofah. Um, I grew a bunch of birdhouse gourd one year because they wanted them, the grandkids wanted them for projects that winter to make birdhouses. And when they were little, I'm like, I wonder if you could eat one of these. They taste like squash. Yeah. You know, until they get a certain size and they get all pithy and they're not really good for that anymore. That's just, or we found a, a plant last year called Indian snake bean. It's actually a gourd. And that's one of the best tasting things I've ever eaten in my life. Uh, Indian tastes, snake meat, you said? Yeah, Indian snake bean or Indian python bean or python. Oh, snake Chinese bean. python. Yeah, I grow that yeah. every. See, those common names, man. I yeah. grow that too. It's it's really good, and it's crazy looking. Like I feel like you're going to be in like a, a market where you're like looking at the shelves, like what in the hell is that, yeah. or how do you use it? Just try, like start experimenting. I I grow that, and I have like handed people, and they're like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? I'm like, just eat it. I'm like, yeah. cook it up, squash. 
it's it's a fantastic substitute for so well. The the one thing that's a pain in the butt, at least that I found with that one, is getting the seeds. The seeds are low germination. I I'm I've yet to master. I, I mean I'll plant my ten seed. I always get a, yeah. you know a couple to take, but really low germination. But it grows so really well. <laughs> the hack with that is to scarify the seeds and soak them overnight before you sell them. Okay. So take I'll do like it. some uh, emery cloth or fine sandpaper and just really lightly into the because they have a a coating that's on them. Super and, thick. Yeah, yeah, and that's what keeps the water from penetrating. And then throw, you know, it doesn't even need to be overnight. Or overnight's the right term, I guess. Doesn't need to be 24 hours. Like before you go to bed, throw them in a, a cup of water and then plant them the next day. And you'll get 80% versus like 10% with them. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those were the, like, I try to find something every year that's a new thing that's totally like this, I'm going to grow forever. And that's the one I found last year. And, for those that haven't tried them, they taste like when they're raw, they taste like green bean or cucumber mm-hmm. or cucumber, like cucumber, green bean. And when you cook them, then they taste like green bean, cucumber. And it uh, and when you let them grow to seed, they have that red pulp in there. that kind of tastes like tomato sauce. It's a crazy Tomatoes, plant. Yeah. It's um, the it's the crazy and the, I mean I have one that like literally trailed my my daughter's five, so I don't know she's like three three and change feet tall, and it literally like went from her feet draped around her neck and came back down. These things are like they produce a lot of food in a small space. It's it's really fun fun looking. We did have a really harsh drought last year though, and I thought the whole thing was going to be a failure. Because I would get little fruit sets and then they wouldn't grow because they weren't pollinated. And they have those little freaky little flowers look like something being a Star Trek episode on a planet they beam down to. And it's they remind me of like passion fruit flower. Yeah, they look a tiny, a tiny passion fruit flower, right? Yeah. But it's it's nocturnal moths that actually pollinate them. And I think what happened is we had that harsh drought and we didn't have the nocturnal moths. And then Mm. when the weather pattern shifted in August, we started to actually get some rain for the first time in almost a year. And then all of a sudden they all like I had them raining. I do cattle panels in an arch and I had them like raining down and, you know, they're three and a half, four foot long. And I let some of them on there too long because I do a workshop every November and uh, I wanted students to see them growing there. And they started to get like reddish orange in spots. And those spots were like soft and mushy. But the rest of the freaking thing was still good. They never got pithy. That's like, big. I know we're now we're doing the snake bean podcast, but it's like one of those things that is just, I don't know anything really harms it. Our pets are not adapted to it, I guess. Nope. And they have that really thick waxy coating, which I think helps a lot. Like it's, it's kind of like that, like not, yeah, it's kind of waxy to me. And I think that might help with it too, but. I think the other nice thing about them is they have this super skinny vine, right? So like we were talking about squash vine borers. Yeah, they're like I there. always grow um the Mexican sour gherkin cucumbers because yep. the vine is too thin for the pests to get in there. You're talking and about so the mouse can, melons, the little tiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah those things melons, are cool like as crap. Little teeny. Yeah, you, they're not the same as the big cucumbers, but they're close. Well, and they're delicious. You don't have to worry you, about them if you lacto ferment them. They're freaking incredible because they stay crunchy. Yeah. They hold their texture a lot better. We we never they don't really make them in the house. We usually just eat them yeah, out of hand in the garden. I, I grew a bunch of them one year, and I lacto fermented them. You throw a grape leaf in the lacto ferment, and that that tannin add will keep that crispiness there. And they're like crack cocaine once you lacto ferment. <laughs> I mean, 
they, they make a pretty cool little thing to put like in somebody's martini or something too. Cause it looks like a little watermelon in there. You know? Oh, that's hysterical. I didn't think about that. We, we do all sorts of crazy garnishes and stuff with our, our, our foods too. I'll have to try that. Yeah. One Bloody out. Mary. That's a good thing for a Bloody Mary. Uh, diversity here says, uh, bitter gourds do well too. I've had good luck around those. Um, they're an acquired taste. I think if you, if you like them, you like them. And if you don't, then you really don't. I don't know yeah, if you've ever sure. tried those. I have. I, I think um, I, I'm much more open to experimenting, and I also encourage people to experiment a lot more with the uh, veggies more so than the fruit trees. Because um, veggies, like you pay pay for a pack of seeds, you're what three, maybe five dollars if you're getting something super rare. It takes one season. You try it, you hate it, you don't grow it again. Who cares? Um, the fruit trees, like I, I'm all for growing what's well adapted. So like I grow all sorts of like the sapote family and stuff that people aren't familiar with, like the canistel and the potomba and all the stuff that nobody's ever heard of. And yeah. so like, I'll have people come and they look and they're like, Oh, th- where, where can I get one? I was like, well, have you ever tasted one? Cause you know, when you're, when you're spending, you know, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50, maybe a hundred dollars on a tree, you're going to be waiting two or three years. Like you better make sure that's something you enjoy. Otherwise you just wasted time and money and space on something that is not well suited for you and your family. Yeah. I tell people that all the time, try something before you grow it. I mean, I grow all the radishes I want, but unless they're daikon, I don't really want them. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the daikon, my favorite thing on them is the seed pods. Let them go to seed and those little pods you pick them. They look like little green beans mm-hmm. or fry those things. It's insane how good they are. Breakfast yeah. radishes, yeah, I can make them in 25 days and they'll be there. And I don't want to eat them, so I'm not going to grow them. And I, you should like we say, eat what you store and store what you eat. Well, grow what you eat and eat what you grow, right? Like absolutely. Whenever I do my meal planning, that that's exactly what I do. Like first thing I do is like I make a list of what's fresh in the garden and I base my meals around that. It's such a foreign concept nowadays, but like exactly like you said, you've got to eat what you grow. Like there's no point in growing something that your family doesn't enjoy. Or that you're not going to consume enough of like that. The whole point is, is to start meeting some needs and some growing some food. So, you know, focus, everybody's garden is going to look different. And if you've got picky eaters in the family and all they eat is potatoes and you should probably be growing mostly potatoes. Like don't, don't try to force it. Like, yeah, you can explore, especially if you are open to something like squash, then sure. Try to find a squash substitute or whatever, but definitely focus in, focusing in. That's going to, that not only going to, like you know cut the grocery bill and all that stuff but you're more likely to keep trying if it's something you actually like like it's going to give you the motivation give you the satisfaction of hey i just grew this and i got to eat it (laughs) yeah um let's go through some of what i call the eeyore objections people that say they can't do a thing and i think mostly it's because they don't want to do the thing instead of just saying they don't want to do the thing well i can't do it because so one of those is i don't have a lot of money now, I don't know about you, but we grew food when I was a kid because we were poor. So that sounds like the exact wrong thing. What are your thoughts on that? I'm with you completely. Like, I, I have a pretty looking garden, sure. Like, I, I've invested some money in it. I'm in an urban setting, and I give tours all the time. But, like, I I say all the time, like, you could start a garden for free. It's always sure. going to be a balance of time and money. So if you have no money put a little bit of time into it and you can make your own soil. You don't need raised beds. Everybody thinks you need the fancy raised beds. It could literally be a mound of soil on the ground. That's plenty to grow it. Like you, you there, there, the what ifs, the, the, especially with the money to me, 
Like you can get seeds from a free seed library. You can't, you don't need pesticide if you're willing to go out there and hand pick your, you know, the caterpillars when you first put your plants out. Like you can make newspaper pots to start your, your veggies in. Like there, there is always an option. And I, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of times when we throw those out, maybe it's just because of the expectation or what we see as normal, but I don't think any of those what, <laughs> what ifs really make it through. Yeah. Yeah. What about, well, I rent, I rent, so I, I can't do any of this stuff because my landlord won't let me or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I do a lot of that, too, uh, with the container gardening. You know, people yeah. discount container gardening as, like, not real gardening. And my my question is always, like, are you growing Why? food? Then, yeah. then, yeah, you're gardening or you're growing. Like, that's all that matters. And, honestly, container gardening has some advantages. Like, you don't get some of the soil-borne pests and stuff like that, especially if you keep it on like, you know, your cement patio or your screen screen porch. If you don't know about your sunlight and your sun exposure and you guess, but you guessed wrong, guess what? You get to pick up your container and go find the right spot for it. Whereas your raised beds, you're going to be doing a lot of shoveling, you know, so um, container gardening. And if you're a small space garden or you're an apartment, and you really want to up the game, get one of the towers, the vertical gardens, right? Mm. Like the green sock, whatever. You grow 70 plants in three square feet. You don't need soil to plant it into. You don't need a raised bed. And you can easily pretty much tuck that anywhere. And I mean, push comes to shove. You can grow your microgreens in five square inches on your windowsill if you really wanted to. You know, th- there's always something for everyone to grow, no matter what space you're in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing with the container gardening, too, is especially in climates like like, well, mine, I don't know if you get much frost at all. A um, little bit here and there, I guess. But like here, we'll get freezing weather for two or three days in a row. And then we'll go four weeks of the most perfect weather you could have. Absolutely. Well, big pots as containers in a dolly, you know, you actually have an advantage then because you can bring those plants inside for a day or two. Here, a lot of times, even when it's going to have a freeze overnight, we we can have that plant out all day long and we only need to bring it back in. I've been thinking about and actually doing some citrus that way uh, because it, 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 it's a huge advantage being able to move that stuff. Uh, yep. One thing I don't advise unless you plant your move that you plan is very close to where you are now is like growing trees and pots with the idea they'll get to a certain size and then I'll take them with me when I go because you'll be surprised that the, stuff you have to go through to get that tree to that place and how much space it'll take up. And you can't stack it like you stack all your stuff in boxes and stuff. So um, you can ask me how I know that, but I took several small dwarf trees to my place in Arkansas from my place in Arlington. And it was almost a trip in of itself just to get them all up there. Yeah, we did the same thing. We moved um, to our, this place and we looked like the Beverly Hillbillies, but with plants, like we hold a whole <laughs> flatbed trailer. We've got stuff yeah. stacked everywhere and they get beat up on the move. Like it, it, I, I say do it for that one prized specimen yeah. that you'd like yeah. to get the jump, you know, one or two things that you'd like to get a little, you know, you want to buy a sapling tree and get it started. Cause you know, in the next one to two years, you'll be at your plate. Okay. But yeah, I, I, I agree there that most of what you should focus on at that point is just some of the veggies, not so much on the fruit or the, the large trees. What about strategies to adapt to blue hair HOAs where they tell you you park your car in the driveway so you owe them money 
because some of them are that bad. Like you can't leave your car in the driveway overnight. I've seen that. There's one here in in Christmas. They don't, their their street is called Emerald Cove. If you put out anything other than just pure green uh, lights, they find the people for putting out regular Christmas lights. So some of these HOAs are a bit extreme. Uh, most are not that bad, but there's strategies to work even within the HOAs, isn't there? Yeah, I I think so. The HOAs are something that I I would I wouldn't personally never put myself in that position. But when you're yeah. in that position, it is what it is, right? So um, I I would highly encourage just like the non um, identifiables. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like there's ginger and turmeric people look at it and they think it's like some cute ornamental tropical whatever like put that out front um put the gardens in the back work in container spaces and if they're really that bad get an indoor grow set you're not going to grow as much you're going to have to rely on power but it's something and you can still have your fresh herbs and your one or two um you know fancy you know tomato plants and pots and everything like that and you can get a little food on the table that way but um we were even talking about like livestock that you could probably work into that HOA. There's there's a solution for pretty much any problem, you know, and also networking and community based. So like if, if they allow the gardens, but they don't allow composting, like go find a friend that's not in an HOA and ask him if you can have you can have your little container and you manage it and he gets half and you get half or whatever. There's there's pretty much always something to work around um, with the HOAs, I think. I think one of the permaculture principles is we mimic nature. Well, as unnatural as it is, we can still use that approach. So you look at most HOA neighborhoods, they have the lollipop tree in the front yard. Well, that tree could be productive. They have some form of ornamentals planted all around it. They have a little island out by the mailbox, one in front of the house. All of that can be planted with edibles, and a lot of edibles are very attractive. Some you mentioned, especially in your climate, turmeric and ginger, uh, but like in more temperate climates, the different versions of Swiss chard, like all the different, mm-hmm. like it's a gorgeous plant. I actually see it being used by a lot of landscapers around here for like commercial landscaping with no yep. intention of anybody eating it. Uh, it it kills in the winter. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like all of that stuff can look really nice. You just have to make it look like marigolds and petunias instead of like your conventional row garden. Uh, yep. you I think mixing into like um, a lot of the flowers with it. So like whenever I help with HOAs and stuff, yeah. like put the extra effort, you're going to have to put in a little bit more time, like keeping like some of the dead leaves and stuff, you know, maintained or whatever. But like you can you can put in the flowers and people notice a heck of a lot less when they see that nice pop of color. Yeah. Yeah. Plant lilies or whatever around yep. all your vegetables. And that's that's good practice anyway. On the livestock thing, the one that I've seen most people get away with is quail. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it done in stack systems like in a garage. People don't complain about what they can't see. Uh, but we actually used to build one of the partnerships I had. We built these little quail tractors and they were built out of uh, wire that was coated with like a it's like PVC, but it's actually something else that's safer for the animals. And they had because quail, you know, you don't want something to be turned over. Everything that eats a quail the bottom just had like one inch grid and then we were able to move them around in a backyard. Uh, you'd have to have pretty nosy neighbors for them to even notice something like that. You know, what is that's our pet birds. We put them out during the daytime so that they can. Exactly. And people don't even know what they look like, honestly. Yeah. And I think a dove is probably louder than a quail. <laughs> like yeah. they just don't make noise. 
Yeah, the roos do make like a, but it sounds, especially in Florida, I mean, it sounds like any other random ass bird out there. Like mm -hmm. you, you have to, you have to live next door to the person that wants to be the head of the board of the HOA to have a problem, I think, uh, with that approach. Um, one of the things I get a lot are people that travel frequently. My number one demographic that asks this question, I'm an over the road truck driver. I'm home three days a week. That, that's that's the number one uh, group that, that I get that from, uh, you know, especially if the person's single. So there's not like a spouse to kind of look after things while they're there or they got the reluctant spouse. They want to do it. The spouse is like, that's your thing, honey. I'm not, I'm out. What are some thoughts on that? Yeah, I think automation, especially in an urban setting, it's it's like we're not we're not having to manage acres. Right. We're we're managing pretty small scale. And when you're working small scale, you're allowed to work. You, you can potentially set up and work around that. So having some automated timers with some drip irrigation, got that check mark. All you, I mean, ideally you'd be spending frequent time, but for your truck drivers that are only there three, that's more than enough time to manage your garden. Even, even having livestock and putting in some self feeders. Yeah. You'll probably have a higher feed cost or whatever, but you can have auto water, auto, auto feeder. You can have it. So the egg nest box, they, they roll into the egg nest box. So you don't have to collect them every day. And in you, depending on how you have it set up, you know, whether it's an enclosed run or if it's a, you know, a pop door where they get to go out during the day and they go in at night, like there's ways to automate all of that stuff so that your input or your time spent in the garden, whether it's based um, around like, you know, traveling or not, not enough time work-wise, like it, it can be pretty minimal where you're just out there doing the harvesting and the sowing of the seeds, Um in the rest of the time, things mostly manage themselves. Yeah, it is. It, these are growing things that like to grow. That's the main thing they need is time to grow, right? What, what are a couple of things you think are most important for people who want to get started or maybe they're doing a little bit, but they want to do more? I think that the first thing is just starting. I cannot tell you how many times people just like get this analysis paralysis and they're just what if I don't do it right? What if something dies? What if I don't pick the right whatever plant? What it, you said, you know, pick the right plant. What if I don't know the right plant? Just start because otherwise you never will. And so just throwing seed in the ground and seeing how it goes, making some observations and tweaking it in the future like that. What is it? The um, ready, aim, fire. Well, ready, fire, aim. Like just just <laughs> correct as you go, you know, and and I think that is when you're just getting started, like, don't let the questions stop you. You know, like, even if you don't have it perfect, even if you've done this your whole life, like, I'll, I'll be 90 out in the garden and still be making mistakes or have a crop not come to fruition based on the season or the whatever. Like, that's part of working with nature. That's part of growing food. And that's part of being in your environment and, and working with it. So just start. You're not going to get them all, and that's okay, and just having that acceptance or that realization. But um, I think another really important thing is finding local resources, somebody that's in your area, whether it be like a garden club or a someone, you know, like, quote, unquote, expert or wh whatever, like finding finding somebody in your area to network with because they're going to help you. So step one, getting it started. But once you're ready and going, like, finding a local resource so that they can share like that tropical zucchini that they, you know, or they'll share seeds or they'll say, dude, what do you, you can't plant tomatoes now. You got to do that in like fall or whatever. They're going to give you that like kind of inside scoop. And, and when we look at the generic books on gardening, 
inner gardener, organic gardening, whatever, like they're good starting points. Maybe they're going to help you with some pest management techniques or whatever, but they're not going to have the refined information based on your area. And so no. I think taking the time to find a local meetup or whatever is going to going to get you through that learning curve a heck of a lot quicker. Agreed. Just plan it and then just adapt to it as you go. Um, I do want to pull up real quick your website on the screen here for people. Uh, you want to tell people a little bit about your organization and what you do and, and what resources are available at theurbanharvest.com? Yeah, so everything I do is just helping people get growing. So everything's been an expansion of a need, and I try to fill the need as best I can. So um, we have a seed club that we send out quarterly, and it's helping people get used to seasons and seed and finding those heirloom varieties that actually do well in your area, right? So I send you the packet. I give you a card. Like, there's no excuse. You have all the information you need. You have the seeds sitting in front of you, and I tell you exactly when to plant it type of thing. So um, that helps folks out. Um, I do classes, of course. I've got one coming up on um, growing annuals for self-sufficiency. That one's online. We're going to be talking about, you mentioned earlier, we're going to do succession planting. We're going to be, you know, plant spacing, maximizing your plant spacing, that kind of thing. Um, and we're going to really hone in on like, you know, picking the appropriate crops to really maximize your yields, like, uh, you know, the kale versus the broccoli type thing. Um, so that class is coming up. Um, I have a curated collection of seeds as well in the store um, that are all those heirloom varieties that do well for my climate. And, and everybody's going to have something, you know, different as far as what's appropriate for their area. But like the Everglades tomato that's up. Like that's a variety of tomato that they find growing wild in Florida. Tomatoes are easy enough to grow, but this one is particularly well suited. I have it growing in my sandy soil when most nematodes would take out most tomatoes. This is a variety that if you live in an area that has nematode issues, that has heat, that has the humidity and the, the mildew and all that stuff, like pick a variety that does well. That's a great one for it. Um, so I just try to fill the needs for folks as many different ways as possible, just trying to get them growing food and uh, giving them the resources they need to do it. That's very cool. And again, the, the website is theurbanharvest.com. You guys should definitely check it out. Uh, Elise, I really appreciate you being with us today. This was a fantastic discussion. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Jack. If you got anything else you want to pitch before you go, this is your time. Go ahead and do it. Uh, I don't know. I just, I, it's all about community for me. So if you have some questions, reach out. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on YouTube. I've got my own YouTube channel that does, we got a hundred something videos all on um, tropical urban homesteading um, topics, um, you know, which varieties to plant when, um, that kind of thing. My top 10 favorite leafy greens for heading into the summer months, all that good stuff. And that's a great place to start, start your learning process. Just check that out. Um, but yeah, reach out if you have questions, I'm happy to help and get you growing. And remember folks, uh, about an hour after the live stream ends. So if you're watching this in the future, instead of live, it's probably already been done. If you try to go there now, it won't work, but there's a link right down in the video notes. Uh, and if you click on that link you get over to where we publish the audio version of the podcast on the website, uh, all of the stuff that she just mentioned is already entered into the resources in the links. So you can get access to any of that stuff. All you got to do is just get over. And I think today's episode 
uh, is uh, 3249, if I remember right. But I've kind of had a scrambled beginning to my day. Yes, it is correct. 3249, <laughs> I found that brain cell. Elise, thanks for being with us today. Oh, yeah. And uh, Jack, you always say um, Bitcoin. We do accept Bitcoin as well. All right. I know a lot of people are not, not fully there, but if you are. We're more than happy to work with you on that level. <laughs> That's a reason to do business with the urbanharvest.com if there ever was one. Thanks a lot, Elise. Have a good one. Well, folks, I do hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, the sickle squash, I've, I've looked this up, and I only found one place selling seeds for it, and that person is sold out. Again, it's S-I-K-I-L. Uh, I'm kind of excited about that one. If anybody out there has some seeds for this squash, if you've been growing it, uh, please reach out to me. I'd be happy to buy some from you. Uh, Elise offered to send me a few seeds, but she only has a very small quantity, so I didn't want to take them from her. So I, I'm really interested in this. Again, the plant is known as Tropical Zucchini Sickle Squash, S-I-K-I-L. Uh, that was probably worth tuning in today for alone. And again, she's got a great website, and especially if you're in her area of Florida, what a great resource to tie into. I always hear, I want to build community. I want to find people that are like-minded. Well, go to a place where people garden and grow their own food, and I, get, I bet you're going to find it. So if you live in that area of uh, Florida, definitely check out what she's doing. And otherwise, check it out anyway. I think I'm going to get me some of these Everglades tomato and, uh, from her and see how those work out as well. With that, as we wrap up today, I want to remind you there's a couple of ways to support this show. One is to become a member of the Member Support Brigade. Now, you should do that even if when you say, Jack, you're a jerk, you really mean it. And the reason that you should do that is because you're going to get so many discounts, you're going to make money by having uh, an account with the Member Support Brigade. So if you do actually like the show and you're still listening after all these years and you're not a member, do consider becoming a member and support us at $0.18 cents an episode. The other thing you can do is your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Whenever you shop there, you help us out no matter what you buy. I don't have an item of the day for you today. I got a little bit behind on things. Uh, but I will will reiterate the product I had on yesterday, the Porter Cable 9-inch Pruning Reciprocating Saw Blades. They are one of the best bang for the buck, and almost everybody out there probably owns a reciprocating or a saw or a saw saw, as some people call them. And the blades are universal, so the brand doesn't matter. Porter Cable just has that blade pattern for the best price that I've seen. And what it looks like is a little mini bow saw blade, which is why it's perfect for limbing trees and taking down saplings and what have you. And much less noise and much safer, in my opinion, than a chainsaw. Uh, and, and last but not least, uh, I just want to again say how much I appreciate everybody tuning in and let you guys know that if you want to meet some folks that you can, uh, you know, to build community with either locally or uh, across the country, even depending on where they're from. You need to check out the Self Reliance Festival in Camden, Tennessee. The spring one this year is running from March 25 and 26. Uh, and you can find out more by going to my website, thesurvivalpodcast.com, and you'll see an article. Uh, if you scroll down, you'll find it. It'll be in the Daily Mail. I put it out on social media. I'll be doing that all for the rest of the, this week and next week. Um, right now, if you get your tickets a little bit early, they're only 75 bucks. 
I went to two of these last year, and they were fantastic. I'm still trying to work out if I can get to the one in September. I can't do this one here in March. But if you can, you really should go. They're going to have some great speakers. Uh, Paul Wheaton, Bear Independent, John Willis, Nicole Sauce, Dana McClendon from Tactical Response, Sean Mills from the Expert Council, and a ton more. And But the big thing is getting to meet other like-minded people. Again, you guys always say you want to do that. Well, it's things like TSP Workshops. It's t- things like Self-Reliance Festivals. Things like Exit and Build that's coming up a few months later. Like Get out to these real-world events, meet people, and spend just as much time, in fact, more time, talking to the people sitting next to you and across the table from you and what have you at these events as you do the speakers. I know everybody wants to come out and meet us, and that's great, but you know we can only spend so much. If you go to a 500-person event, if you give everybody a minute, you, you have no time at all anyway, right? So you can only, you have to talk in groups and what have you. But there's so much opportunity for cross-networking at these events. Self-Reliance Festival, Camden, Tennessee, and John Willis and Nicole Sauce, they do an excellent job with this. It's a great venue, lots of stuff to see, lots of on-site demonstrations as well, so check it out. And remember, if you want to make sure you don't miss anything, get on my daily mail. It's really simple. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on daily mail, give me your name, and give me an email address. That's it. If you don't want to give away your real name, I don't care. I won't know. It's all automated anyway. I don't spam anybody. I send one email a day to my list. It says, here's all the new stuff on the blog. If you do that, you'll never miss a thing. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month. Show you a better way